Welcome to Grails, a podcast by Alton Insights. My name is John Tunger, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Evan Vandenberg. He's the CEO of Dibs, a platform that lets you fractionally invest in sports cards. But like you'll hear in this conversation, there's a lot of differences between Dibs and other fractional platforms like Rally, Otis, and Collectible. There's been a ton of hype around Dibs. They right now have a huge waiting list. And good news, really good news for those of you listening to this podcast right now, loyal listeners of Grails, Dibs has gone ahead and given us an early access code to offer to all of you. So if you're on the wait list, you can open up the app, type in this code, and you'll be moved past the line and be able to use the platform today. And that early access code, a big curveball here, is Grails. Type in Grails and get access to Dibs. But even better than that, you'll actually be given access to free cards on the platform. They have what they call these frack packs, so fractional packs of cards. It's a really, really cool concept where basically you get to open up a pack of cards where different values of cards that they have on their platform are inserted into these packs. And it's an extremely easy way, literally risk-free, to start your portfolio on Dibs. So download Dibs and use the code GRAILS to get access to Dibs right now. And I would love to see what cards you got in your frack pack. So either DM or screenshot them and uh, send them to us on Twitter at Alton Insights or to myself at John Tugger. Would love to see those cards. Let's get started. Dibs is different than a lot of the other fractional platforms that are out there for reasons that they won't really scream from the rooftops on their platform because they could lose people in the blockchain jargon. But basically, rather than making LLCs around these assets and then distributing shares to people who buy assets on the platform, they actually go and they tokenize an asset, which is a digital representation that the item has been securitized and that someone owns it. And all of this is public record on the blockchain. And with all of the hype around tokenization, NFTs, all of these digital collectibles, Dibs has really been operating at full steam, paving the way for what this could actually look like in the space, especially when a digital item is tied to a physical item like a sports card. Now, Evan and his team have a ton of experience when it comes to crypto businesses and technology. And when they knew that they wanted to get involved in a market that trades assets, Dibs actually wasn't the first iteration of that business. The first idea of Dibs really came from, you know, years of being in the, the in-game item, um, you know, in-game item economy space, both from, you know, actually helping companies in the gaming side and, and uh, blockchain side kind of develop these economies to running a secondary market in that space as well, seeing you know what, what that world looks like when you actually have a vibrant trading community, right? Where this is instantaneous, it's global, it's, it's fun, it's fast. Um, and just watching how many businesses and, and communities popped up around that, you know, kind of got the bug um, then. And then, you know, I think I've talked about this multiple times, but was, was working at Wax and, and one of the partners I brought in was Tops. And for somebody who'd been collecting cards for, you know, most of their life, um, it got me reinvigorated, right? I hadn't been on eBay buying and selling for a while. And so I kind of had this idea of things that I wanted to do. And then the light bulb kind of struck uh, through, you know, numerous conversations with the guys at Tops, getting more inundated with that crowd um, and just really getting through the hobby of, uh, of getting back into the hobby of buying and selling myself and just being like, holy crap, this is not at all like the world I live in day to day. And, and it's yeah. really, it's not necessarily bad. It's just so different and, and, and inefficient in many ways. 
Right. And when I remember first hearing the pitch, even that at that point, like it wasn't like we you're really talking about the rally and Otis's of the world, right? It, it still was like the, it was so such a new industry that it was like, hey, there can be as much traction to be right alongside with them, even though they've already been in the game. Were you always trying to be different than them? Kind of very similar. What was that thought process like? Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. Uh, this will be a multi multi answer uh, question, but. Yeah, no, we never really intended to compete with them in, in their lane, right? That was really not the point of Dibs. Um, we really at the core of like, if you know the Dibs extended team and everything they've worked on, like we're really about like the real time, constant, organic place to be. Um, markets, communities that spread out around that and, and really have kind of more of a vision for, you know, doing some interesting stuff with with digital collectibles and, and not, you know, it, it never really felt like when we were starting this company that we were in direct conflict uh, with collectible and rally, of course there's overlap, but you know, to add another layer to that, like those guys are doing a great job. Like I, they really do provide a very different offering than we do. And they do a very good job at it, you know, on a complimentary side, like been able to connect with people on both teams and they're just, they're really good people. They've been incredibly welcoming to us. It's been less, uh, adversarial than, than might meet the eye, uh, at least ostensibly. And, yeah. yeah. So no, I mean, we never really, we wanted to do something different and we wanted to leverage different technology, different legal frameworks, um, yeah. really a different experience altogether. And I agree that, yeah, you guys are very different than that genre, but could you go into a, a bit more? Like you say that your offering is different. What, what is different for someone who doesn't know dibs, but they know rally and Otis and collectible, what makes dibs different there? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a multitude of things that, that would be differentiators, right. Uh, for better or worse, but you know, at the core of what we did is when we started Divs, we really looked at this from, you know, a 10,000, 30,000 foot view. And we said, okay, like there are certain things we want to do, namely around having live trading, right. And, and really having this kind of organic market. Um, and so we took a very different approach from both like a regulatory standpoint, which ultimately led to a technological decision-making tree that was very, very different. Right. So underlying a lot of uh, everything on dibs, right? There is a blockchain component to it, right? We don't really care and don't really want people to have to worry about the blockchain piece unless <laughs> right. they care to. <laughs> right. But for us, there's a lot of really interesting use cases around why that's interesting, right? So like every mm -hmm. asset on dibs, not just theoretically, but in practice can be A, taken off dibs in the form of shipping it to your house. And B, you can actually take that NFT off dibs and bring it to another marketplace in the crypto space, so like anybody who's compatible with our standard, you can actually take this item and you could go trade it on another marketplace. So it really is like this item. Yes, it's on dips today. Ultimately, we think there's going to be an ecosystem and there's reasons to that, right? Like reasons that we've really experienced deeply in our past, right? Where when you have a free flowing market, sure, maybe we some of these things trade on other places. And that's like, look, that's OK to me. We want to empower this like kind of entire ecosystem around it while still maintaining really the, the the authenticity and like the safety storage custodial ship and all that stuff that allows for people to have a lot of trust in those products know that they're always backed by the real thing and that they can have those whether it's you know they're getting them from us or it ultimately ends up on another marketplace that dibs nft is always redeemable for the uh the physical card wow so in your kind of vision it's almost like you could take this and if I wanted to sell my shares, cause technically it's like tokenized, right? I could almost do that somewhere else. Is that what you're, you're really thinking? Yeah, absolutely. at some point, definitely. Um, I think right now the, the fractional pieces are like on the platform. We have different buyout rights for them. So you can, you know, piece, if we have one card on the platform, there's no multiples. Um, you know, there's ways to piece those together and you can actually ex, you know, execute a buyout on them. Once you reach, reach a certain threshold, we're starting to see people reach those thresholds. So we're like excited to see what ends up coming out of that. 
Um, but ultimately, you know, when you execute a buyout, you know, you can buy off the card. Um, we're trying to kind of, and that's, you know, another discussion on the buyout stuff. We really want to optimize it for what the community wants. Right. I think there's like the idea of what we had in our head. And then there's ultimately like what makes the most sense for people. Right. But at the core of it, right. Yeah. We really want these things to come off the platform, whether they come to your house or they move to another market or, you know, some other mechanism gets built. That's, that's really interesting for them. You know, we're here to kind of support that. It's not, um, it's not a against uh, our ethos. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. I I use for some reason when I think of dibs, I don't think of buyouts happening too much on the platform because it's like they just keep getting traded up higher and higher. Was that a part of your initial vision as well? Yeah, we like we really do think that that, that ultimately would be an interesting part of dibs, right? I think at the core of dibs though is is really more around making a much more you know, fun and accessible way to get involved in cards, right? And that is really at the core of what we want. Like these are features, right? Things you can do. Um, right. We want to have a different level of ownership, but we also really want to make, I think card collecting as a whole, right, is is become extremely difficult to get started, right? I mean, you and I were talking before this and it's like, you know, we spend our lives in this stuff and it's still confusing as to like how certain things operate. And, and there's just such a data threshold and just a, a knowledge base that you can't, it's not like, Hey, tomorrow I'll be a card expert. Like in, in not right. in a year from now, will I be like the world's expert in cards? Like you gotta be really wise and, and even then lucky. Right. And so I think trying to, to reduce some of the, the data barriers to entry, right. And, and some of the costs obviously with fractional, which your listeners clearly understand, but I think trying to make a more approachable model for getting more, more fans into sports cards and collectibles is, is really at the core of it. Yeah. And I love how you guys focus on modern players too, like a lot of other platforms and things like that. You know, it's like a lot of vintage, which is great. Um, but you're kind of the only shop in town to get a lot of modern players. Um, and that's something I have a ton of fun with. Um, I want to dive into kind of from start to finish, like when you guys acquire an asset, bring it on the platform and then it starts trading. I'm curious, like how you even start your card acquisition process, right? Because like you guys are focusing on, it looks like a lot of Prism right now, PSA 10. So first, like what do you look for and, and how do you go and acquire that? Yeah. So, I mean, getting back to like your initial point about the modern cards, right? That's 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 clearly by design. Um, at least that was the hypothesis when we started this. And I think people need to understand that like this thing's been alive for like two and a half months in terms of like in even a limited set of customers' hands. So, right. you know, we have hypotheses around how this should work. And one of those was, look given the way we're building this, right, this mobile first kind of platform, there is a lot of really interesting stuff going on with modern players. For better or worse, I think modern players are such a tangent, not even tangential, they're, they're really directly correlated to the current performance of that player, right? So you have this like real time nature, like we watch this all the time on the platform. It happens on eBay, but on our platform, it happens under a microscope, right? Where Kevin Porter Jr. scores 50 points. That card goes up 50% in value, right? Like there is a direct correlation to athlete yeah. performance. LeBron gets hurt. Cards go down. Silly in some respects to me, like LeBron should be like, I don't know, that he can get injured all he wants and like he should still be, you know, a goat, right? But yeah, basically the, the concept with modern cards, we wanted to find modern cards that have been traded frequently, right? So when we look at things, it's, it's both through the lens of modern active players like high value active player cards but then also like what are actually trading a lot in other ecosystems mm -hmm. and trying to get a sense of you know what do people actually want um and making a more like simplistic way to getting involved in the most traded cards um but it's you know again we've yeah I, i'll leave it at that and i can answer any other question you have on that front right well and and so even diving into that a little bit more it looks like right now when i'm scanning through so let's take NFL, for example, that's what I look at yeah. a lot, or basketball. It looks like right now, like you're going after on the lower end, 
like prism base cards that are graded PSA 10. And then on the high end, it looks like there's like a lot of national treasures on there. So are you specifically going after those type of card sets to basically try and set a benchmark? I don't know if it's setting a benchmark so much as it's a lot easier to get better data on those brands, right? I think in Mm. general, the most traded brands in, in every sports vertical are pretty clear, right? On the low end, mid end and, and high end. And I think part of what we wanted to get to was, okay, we can actually make some educated decisions on these things. We can go get them at, at a much higher rate. Um, these things have a bit more like clear value long-term, not that like optic and, and other sets don't have like good value going forward. It's just when, when you have to kind of boil the ocean, you just choose a handful of things. It's not to say that Prism's only gonna be the only thing we ever add on there. Like it's definitely not, we've got other stuff. Um, but it was the hypothesis was, yeah, let's go get PSA 10s anywhere we can for highly graded cards of active players that people care about, right? If we really kind of synthesize things. And then we'll go from there. We'll learn, I think, you know, we're kicking out our Discord and different community channels. We really want to get the feedback directly from people, right? And, right? and figure out what it is that the customer wants, more so than our guesses in a, you know, isolated chamber of, you know, of our own echo chamber, right? So I think that's a big next step in the in the business is, we'd like to crowdsource the ideas of what people want. And if it's Prism, great. If it's something I've never heard of, you know, we'll go make it happen. Yeah. Okay. So you go out, you hunt, you get uh, some cards to put on the platform. What's that process of getting them, tokenizing them, uh, a drop? What the heck is a drop, right? So how does that process work? Yeah. So in terms of getting the cards, right. And this has been on a a more limited basis up until, well, still even to this day, uh, we work through a consignment model and and you're familiar with some of these peeps and, 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 you know, a lot of the folks in this network, but we've been working with, you know, well-reputable large collectors so that we would have, you know, minimal business overhead in terms of like making a bunch of new deals. So we've got a handful of of consignors who we've been able to get, you know, a, a million or so dollars of cards that they're listing on behalf or we're basically listing on their behalf on the, on the platform. So what we do is we basically have a contract with them. We can sign their card. They send it to our vault. All the cards have to be graded, reauthenticated, insured for a lifetime. Um, and then those cards are now in the vault. They're ready to go. That's where we take it into the NFT process, which is really taking all the core details from that card, everything required to return it. Um, and then we add like the images and ultimately can add some other like cool features to it. But the, the NFT itself is really more of a digital rights management yeah. tool, right? It, it's really like, okay, this is what's required to go send this back and get the physical thing in, in, in return. And so that, you know, that's things like PSA serial number, you know, other things that we hash, um, the images of the card, right? The grades, the manufacturer, all the kind of like basic information you'd expect. That's actually a really simplistic process. I think people get really uh, <laughs> yeah. like over over the moon about blockchain, how complex it is. Like we come from that space. So I guess it's, it's slightly easier for us. But look, at the end of the day, it's a public record on a blockchain, right? And right like like it's, we're putting it's, it on a database. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a database record. The thing we do that's very different than a lot of other companies, we actually do host everything on IPFS. So like our stuff is like not to get into like the total weeds, but like if divs went out of business, that card image is still there. That card is still available. You can still take that to a smart contract and get it. If we all died off, and that's something we always operate. It's like a litmus test that we have at the business is Mm. everything we do long-term needs to allow for a more, it's not that we want to go out of business, right? But like in customer protection and all these things, like we really, that's a big thing that we have to go through both on the legal front. And then also just from like a user experience front is, in the case that we all died in a fiery plane crash, not to use a horrible, morbid example, but there would be a way to take your items and get them back. And, and different marketplaces are already building support for our uh, for our cards. Yeah, wow. 
And then when it comes to pricing it, are you just, uh, you know, clicky clack type into eBay and saying, okay, recent prices went, you know, went at this price. Okay. Listed on the platform or how, how do you do that? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced. Um, in general, we provide data to our consigners, right? That data comes from a lot of different sources, sources that probably everyone uses, some sources that we have basically all verified sales data that we can, we basically can aggregate. We give to them, right? And the idea is we don't want to price things over market. And I want to like self-admittedly, we've made mistakes, right? In the last two months, like there have been cards that like, I wish we could take back. By and large, most things have been at or below market on eBay holistically, but there have been a few that, that have really kind of, you know, they just, they, they weren't priced correctly. And that's something that like we've taken extremely seriously, especially in the last, you know, we always did, but it, there was ones that just slipped through our slip through our realm. And, and, and that's something we're really working on. I think that ultimately we'd like a governing body that's not related to dibs. Hmm. Um, you know, somebody like yourself, for instance, who you aren't a consigner and you're not part of the team, but you do know something about cards. And when we have disputes, those things get settled by a third party, right? Where it says, nah, like this is actually like fair and this is ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And are you saying those misprices yeah. happen at the drop or later when they're traded? Because correct me if I'm wrong, every card goes through a drop and then it gets moved to the market, correct? Correct. So the drop is is essentially like the IPO on Rally and Collectible, right? It's the only time that you can buy into a card at a set price for a set amount of time. So gotcha. the price is set, right, at that point. And that's where I would say the mistakes have been made. Um, if there, you know, where there were mistakes made, they were made on that. Hmm. Um, when it's kicked into a live market, that's where it's really the peer-to-peer trading, right? So like at that point, you've got an order book, which we can you know jump into and something we're really trying to simplify right now. But once you're on the platform, right, that's pure, that's pure, actually like peer-to-peer buying and selling. And so what people are doing is they want, you know, $100 of this card. Here's what they're trading it for. There's an order book that's matching buyers and sellers constantly. And we're seeing, you know, on good days, thousands of, of transactions uh, on the platform. Right. So when that happens, though, once it's in a live market, we don't we can't control that. Right. There becomes a point where we actually don't have the right to sit in here and say, like, oh, that's like overpriced. But now to that point and something we're going to be, I mean, in the next very, very short, maybe by the time we release this we're adding pricing data to the platform from external sources, right? So what we've, we felt like one of the problems, right? And this is probably something you're about to touch on, right? Is like certain cards are way out of whack with the market, right? right? Absolutely. And like, dude, no one, I think people think that we benefit, right? Sometimes from that. And I'm like, I, I don't, like, it's actually super annoying <laughs> for me as a, as a CEO. And like, right. I hate when things get way out of whack with the market. It's not to say that maybe there's a premium for something on dibs because it's more liquid. You might have some cool ability to do something, but right. In general, we want people to know the market data externally, right? And that means what is something selling for on eBay or PWCC or Golden. And so, um, you know, we're plugging in some some data sources, uh, you know, and there'll be cited data sources, right? So you'll be able to see like last 30 day average, high, low, last price sold, um, things like that to help educate your decision. I think part of it is not everybody is a sophisticated card person on the platform and where that's problematic is they start buying a player or card that they really like and they don't go do the research on eBay beforehand. And so to help kind of bridge right. that gap, we've uh, we've decided to offer showing as much data as we possibly can. Right. So it's a funny thing when people think it's like malicious or something like that, where you're saying, hey, this is an open market. And I love what you're saying, what you guys want to do. Put the data out there right next to the cards. What we were talking about before the show is, you know, me and Cody Main from Establish the Run, we're talking about a Tua card on dibs. And I looked it up and was like, oh, this Tua mosaic, it was something like 
$4,000 or something like that. And on eBay, it's going for 400. I'm like, okay, what's the price disparity here? And what you're saying is, hey, that's just people who might not understand bidding the price of the card up. But if you put the data in front of them, hopefully the market will just correct itself and it'll just say, hey, uh, yeah, this card seems to be overvalued right now. It'll get back to to maybe where other markets are at. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Totally, right? And then the problem becomes that the person who bought that up, right, on a small scale, right, like you can see microcosms of like an overall market health thing that we constantly are thinking about and working on, which is, okay, so now one person bought that up, right? They don't want to sell down because nobody's filling up that buy order until it gets closer to 400. And so you end up with this issue where that person doesn't want to sell and absolutely nobody wants to buy at that price either, right? If they're educated on their decision. And so trying to kind of solve for that problem long-term is something that we have like, you know, definitely a very like clear plan for. There's ways to, to make it, you know, A, you can educate users more, right? We put in stop gaps to like warn people like, hey, this is what you're doing is like, you know, in bright nice. red, this is problematic. And we just won't even execute things if they're so out of whack, right? Nice. Um, but there's only limits to what we can we can protect against, right? Because at the end of the day, if somebody finds value in something at a certain price, like we can't stop that. I think what you try to do is you try to put a little bit of rationale and, and science and data behind it. And you say, look, all right, you're doing that, but here's the price information. Like this is what you would do if you executed that. Yeah. And the thing is like the seller on the other side of that's thrilled because they're like, oh, well, my limit order just got filled. Right. And they're like, so I, you know, this is where I thought it was, a, I was happy to sell it. And now I've eaten up all these sell orders. So there's like this happy person on one end, right. And a really pissed off person potentially on the other. And you're like, okay, well, how do we solve for that? And I think, you know, some of it is, is simply having more liquidity on the platform. Some of it is data. Right. Um, and I think a combination of those two really helps, right? I mean, in small marketplaces with really small market sizes, you're going to see weird swings. And the way we try to like in the future and, and currently combat that is, is we go get duplicates for some of those cards. We, we add size to those, those markets where people can buy cards yeah. and not have to worry as much about, you know, a 25% price swing on, on a small purchase. Yeah. And I want to correct myself that to a card was 2,700, not 4,000. Um, but how does that work then when you are, cause you're really trying to make it, Hey, invest in the player, not as much the card. So for someone who likes DraftKings and daily fantasy sports and they come onto dibs and they want to buy the player, is that something? Cause right now, if you go on the platform, and you just like buy the collection. Does that just evenly disperse it amongst that one player and all their cards? How does that work? Yeah. Well, let's just talk about what it is and then why we, why it's there is, is, is the second piece. But yeah, what it is, is, you know, we have these infinitely fractional order books, right. On all the cards for, for instance, like LeBron James, maybe his collection on dibs is $105,000 or something right now. He's got one card that's 50 or 60,000 and then a bunch of, you know, other ones that fill it up to a hundred. And so what it does when you place a hundred dollar buy order on his collection is you take that hundred, you proportionally spread it. So it's not evenly in the sense of if he has eight cards, one eighth goes everywhere. It would be based on the value of each card. So you're proportionally getting the same amount of ownership across the collection. That's awesome. Um, And so, yeah. And why we did that, right. Is, is it comes back to a few things. Um, A, cards are very difficult to like pick different SKUs, right? You've got a BGS 9.5, a BGS 8.5 and a PSA 9 of the same card on a platform, right? Not everybody knows the nuances there. They want to buy and collect LeBron James. Like that's who they believe in, right? For instance, just using his name as an example, but instead of forcing somebody to know everything, which I would argue most people really can't perfectly justify, even the smartest people in this space, like it's very difficult to go through this whole thing and, and choose the, the perfect value points for each card. I mean, you could do it, but it would take time. But 
in this way, you can collect a player you like, right? And this is kind of, again, getting people into the hobby, right? Like I have a ton of friends who are now like, hey, man, I want to buy cards. I want to do this. And it's like, okay, well, like, where, where do you want to do? And, and I think kind of a great entry point is having this digital experience where I can collect, I can learn about cards, I can see what's going on. And then there is this like weird, whether people like it or not, there is a fantasy sports element to cards. It, it, there is this, when you're collecting a card, when you're buying a card, right? Like so much of that card's success is determined by the player underlying its performance. And, and what we're seeing when these markets are live and liquid is you're seeing that on a game to game basis, right? And so right. There's, there's kind of an interesting gamified component of it. Um, that really when we set out to build the company, it wasn't actually something we knew was, was really a, a behavior. We knew to some degree, right? Like younger mm-hmm. players having big seasons, of course, that's going to be helpful. The game to game, intragame buying patterns and selling patterns are really interesting to watch for us. So, yeah. And, and I think the other thing is like top of the top of mind and top of funnel for anybody is like, what player do I believe in? Right. You're ultimately buying the player, right? It, it, you, you would have to get pretty far down the the hierarchy of needs until you get into like skews and grades of that particular skew, right? Like you're ultimately believing in like for your case, Jalen Hurts, right? And if there was a way to take a piece of, you know, 10 Jalen Hurts cards in one click, like I think that's a pretty, you know, interesting experience for folks. And then even more so with this vision that you've talked about where you could potentially do a basket of players from, you know, multiple players all at once. Is that still on the roadmap for you guys? I think it's going to be determined by what customers want, right? I think that's, you know, for us, it's very simple to do, right? It's, mm. we, we have an infrastructure, right? Built on the platform where slicing and dicing things in different, maybe it's Lakers, you know, 1980s Showtime Lakers players, right? Like that could be a bucket theoretically at some point or Kentucky basketball players from 2000, you know, John Calipari era. There's so many ways to slice and dice it that like players is the most natural, easy fit. And then where does it go from there, right? Right. Um, Oh, is is interesting that would just be so awesome like even just for me i you know i love this 2020 qb class and so i'm just like yeah. man if i could go in and say you had one that tracked all the premium cards maybe there's some all national treasures or flawless of these different players that would be so awesome because it is impossible for me to go onto ebay and get one of each of these cards or something like that you know and so just to say, hey, 2020 draft class get this basket of players i i think that would be really attractive but i don't know if that's what other people are asking for or, or what the feedback is? I mean, right now it's on such a small scale, right? We've really kind of gated letting tons and tons of people on because we were learning a lot of things and the market really took off in a way that, look, we had dreamed that it would go that well. We didn't think it would all happen in like such a short succession, right? I mean, we still have a small team, probably doubling the size of the team in the next couple months here. Wow. Um, and so, you know, we have Android and Web that are I mean, web is now done. I mean, it's functionally QA'd and tested. I think we're going to probably kick it out in the next, now my engineering team will shoot me, but probably in the next like seven to 10 days. <laughs> yeah, they're like, okay, um, so two weeks. Okay. And so that'll be, yeah, yeah that'll be browser-based. That'll help the people with Android. And then Android will be fast follow. So we've, we've got a few devs working on the Android app, have been for a couple months, getting up to par with iOS and some of the new additions that we're, we're adding in there. So yeah, I think... Um, you can count on that stuff coming in and, and we really like to get off the waitlist stuff. Uh, the only thing that's really interesting from the waitlist is how much global interest there's been. Huh. Um, you know, tens of thousands of people signing up from Western Europe, South Korea, Japan, Australia, Canada, um, which I think is a, a really interesting play long-term is how do we get a global community going? And, and, you know, it's something that we've, we've seen really be powerful in the past. Certainly it's powerful in the NFT crypto space. I think it's incredible in the gaming space and bringing the hobby to 
especially like soccer cards, like us and Europe have never really traded soccer cards together in a meaningful way. Yeah. And I think it could be awesome come Euro cup or, or whatever it may be. The next world cup, uh, could be just really fun to see that. So when you go to the business side, you're just talking about it, the wait list, uh, the future of what you guys are building, how do you have most of the people off the wait list onto the platform now? How's that all going? Uh, where are you guys at with how the platform's growing? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we've, we've not I mean, artificially slowed growth. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, we have not been pushing it like the way we would normally anticipate the last three to four weeks, largely because we did see like certain things that we wanted to fix, things we wanted to add. And, and ultimately, like we're asking a lot of people, like when they onboard, right, there is, you know, it's not the easiest onboarding process. You do have to KYC. We have to follow anti-money laundering laws. We have to, you know, what? And yeah. finally now we've got, <laughs> you know, and there was things that are banking partners and the different um, compliance agencies that we really had to streamline before we felt like comfortable and letting more people in. And so now we're definitely at that point where, all right, let's, let's let this thing open up and let's get new people in here. And, uh, you know, there's always going to be learnings along the way, but I think, you know, part of it was, was that, and then there's also this kind of like Android versus iOS beef that we felt like if we have web, at least anyone can do it. Right. If we have Android, you know, we get that as well. But, um, yeah, so I think, you know, from a growth standpoint, uh, we really haven't done much, right. Uh, it's been really incredible to just see the, the organic kind of community growth of it. Certainly, you know, the first couple of months, just insane. I mean, it, you know, I think the waitlist across the waitlist got something close to 45, 50,000. Wow. Um, wow. and we've let nowhere near that in. That's uh, for basically no marketing, right? Yeah. I mean, we just, the, the stuff we do on social, um, but nothing, you know, we've, we don't run ads. We don't, we haven't really done anything besides a few podcasts and, um, a couple of YouTube videos that, you know, drove people and, and, uh, yeah, it's been more, more of that than anything else. Yeah. It, lastly, before ending here, I want to circle back to something that we talked about in the beginning, uh, which is this real time investing experience that you guys have on dibs. Cause that's, that's really like the big thing that no other platform has that, that you have, right? 24 seven real time all the time. How are you currently seeing that take effect on the platform? Are people trading, you know, right when, for example, if somebody gets injured or goes off on a huge game, are they pretty much going to the platform and trading right away? How is the real-time experience going so far? Yeah, we see it pretty quickly. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about even last week alone, I was in San Diego with the team. It was our first time like getting everybody on the marketing and business side together. And we were watching, you know, watching games and, and, and running through a bunch of like business stuff. And it was insane watching. There's a few uh, kind of enigmatic like moments of, you know, Kevin Porter, like I mentioned, like that popped and he went off. Steph's month, I think has been really good for Steph. Um, you know, it's bigger. It's almost like this weird factor, right? If you, like, if you applied math to it, it would be the younger the player, right? The lower value the player card is like their general card is the better they play, the bigger the spike or decreases or better or worse they play, the better, bigger the spikes are going to be like Steph's been around for, you know, however long 13 seasons, I don't, I I should know, but um, you know, LeBron's been around for forever. So you see similar patterns, but on a much smaller, like amplitude, if that makes sense on a wave, right? Like, right. It's it's, like small cap uh, stocks versus uh, you know, mid cap and and large cap stocks, right? It's, you see like for a small, if a small company performs really well, their earnings, they could go up 50%. But you don't see that from Apple, you know. Yeah. And like, for instance, like RJ Barrett, pound for pound, I think in the last like week or two has been the most traded player. And I I find that fascinating, right? Because you can tell why, right? Like to me, it's that clearly the Knicks are are the real deal this year, frankly, like 
you know, they've blown my expectations and many others away. And I think RJ Barrett is at this point in his career where he's like, what, 20 years old, 21 right. tops. Right. And, you know, he's, he's starting to play really well on a playoff team. And now you have the playoffs coming up and there's a ton, like last year I did this huge analysis on Tyler hero and some of the younger players like MPJ. And yeah, I mean, you do see that a lot. And I think there hasn't been a great way to capture it in real time. Like, until something like this came around. Um, Not at all. So I wonder, I wonder, it's funny because whether we existed or not, like the behavior has always been there. I think just giving people a really meaningful way to like interact and and trade on, on things in real time is, is fascinating. Um, And and I'll let you know, this NBA playoffs be really interesting to watch. I think we'll have more people Mm -hmm. on, Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see kind of what, what it tracks out to. And, uh, Happy to do a little uh, follow-up content with uh, you and the guys at Alton, and yeah. maybe we can put together you know, like volatility swings based on you know player performance. I think it'd be interesting to watch. For the lawyers in the back, a quick disclaimer. You understand that by listening to this podcast, you are not receiving financial advice. No content published here constitutes a recommendation that any particular security, transaction, or investment strategy is suitable for any specific person. You alone are solely responsible for determining whether an investment, security, or strategy, or any other product or service is appropriate or suitable for you based on your investment, objectives, and personal financial situation. Please speak with a financial advisor to understand if the risks inherent in trading are appropriate for you. Trade at your own risk. Bum, bum, bum.